delicious, though it takes up all my time. Republicans now hold veto-proof supermajorities in the North Carolina House and Senate. Where does that leave Democrats elected to serve Asheville and other blue communities? What's different is last session when we were in the minority, but not the super minority, we knew that they were going to run bills that we didn't like. We knew that we were going to lose those votes on the floor, but we also knew that we had our governor. And then we also knew that we could sustain his veto. So it was the attitude was bring it on, pass whatever you're going to pass, because we can stop it. And the difference is now we can't stop it. I'm Matt Pikin. My guests today and tomorrow are State Senator Julie Mayfield and Representative Lindsey Prather. I spoke with them just a day after one of Prather's colleagues in the House announced she was switching from the Democratic to the Republican Party. That flip gave Republicans enough votes as a unified bloc to push through any bill they propose and override any veto from the pen of Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. Today's conversation focuses on how Mayfield and Prather define and carry out their work in Raleigh at a time when they can't hope to pass legislation coming from their own desks. We talk about how they're building relationships behind the scenes, the battle lines they're drawing as members of the minority party, and their strategies on moving the ball downfield when democracy itself is under threat. Hannah Cole wants to keep you from making a mistake when you file your business taxes. Hannah is an Asheville artist and the accountant who founded Sunlight Tax to help solo entrepreneurs like her. I get a lot of questions about how to navigate the IRS payment website. So Hannah made a video that shows when you pay your business taxes versus your first estimated quarterly tax payment. Combining them can get you into trouble. Clicking the wrong dropdown can get you in trouble because you cannot be properly credited for the tax you're actually paying. And it can just cause you a little nightmare rabbit hole of sorting out with the IRS. In her video, Hannah shows you how she made her own payments. She says you can place her video right alongside the IRS website and follow along with her step by step. Getting the navigation correct is really helpful. It just saves you a lot of headache. Like so many other free resources she produces, Hannah just gives you the video. Make your tax time a little sunnier by watching her video at sunlighttax.com overlook. That's sunlighttax.com overlook. Just the day before this conversation, Representative Tricia Cotham of Mecklenburg County said she was leaving the Democratic Party and becoming a Republican. I began today's conversation by asking Lindsey Prather what this means for business in the State House. It means a lot. <laughs> so I will say, being a freshman, as being there for only a few months now, I don't have a whole lot to compare this experience to so far. I can imagine it's a much different experience for people who were previously in the majority and are now in the minority. And so far, this is all I've known. Someone said a couple months ago, they feel like it's almost harder to be in an almost super minority because there's still that that little bit of hope and yes when representative cotham changed parties that did give the north carolina gop supermajority in the legislature now they already had it in the senate they were one seat away in the house and so they do now technically have that in the house we still have yet to see what that will mean in terms of representative cotham's votes or stances on particular policies not sure where that will land but i think i feel really good about 
the other Democrats that are in our caucus. We've stood together on a lot of votes. I was very happy that all the Democrats that were there for the veto override vote did vote to, to sustain Governor Cooper's veto. So I, I feel good about the caucus that we have there now. So, Julie, you already were in, I guess, the uh, super minority party. We were not in the super minority last in my first term. So I'm now experiencing being in the super minority for the first time. And it's a big difference. Can you talk about that detail? What's different about that when you're already in the minority party versus now your position where they have a veto proof majority in the GOP? What's different for you? What's different is last session when we were in the minority, but not the super minority, we knew that they were going to run bills that we didn't like anti-trans bills, gun bills anti-LGBTQ bills, all the things that they've been running this year. And so we knew that we were going to lose those votes on the floor, but we also knew that we had our governor. And then, and he would veto them, and then we also knew that we could sustain his veto. So it was the attitude was bring it on, pass whatever you're going to pass, because we can stop it. And the difference is now we can't stop it. So are you finding, our, even though it's brand new in the House, Are you finding or are you hearing that the GOP is going to bring forward certain bills, certain legislation that they wouldn't have before, that they now see a complete green light for, even regardless of the governor? Yes. And they started, oh, I don't know, the first or second week of session. So again, gun bill that just got over where the veto just got overridden. That was introduced very early in the session. Our version of the don't say gay bill was introduced very early. Basically, there's a whole suite of bills that the governor has vetoed over the last four years that we were able to sustain those vetoes, and they are just systematically reintroducing all of those. So Senate Bill 41, the gun bill, that's the only one that he's vetoed, but he has let, oh, I don't know, probably four or five others become law without his signature because he knows if he vetoes them that they're, they will get overridden. So he's choosing not to use that political capital to veto them, but he doesn't like them. He doesn't want them to be law. But he also sees the numbers and knows that they're going to become law whether he vetoes them or not. So let me ask you, what does it mean to be a representative right now? What does it mean to be a representative in the Democratic Party in North Carolina right now? Sure. I will say that my role has not changed. I am still fighting for the issues and the values that I ran on and that the vast majority of the Democrats serving in the state legislature support as well. While bills that I have introduced are probably going to die in rules <laughs> and won't see a vote, I can still make those floor speeches. I can still highlight bills that are coming through that seem harmless, but actually have a huge impact on people that are on the ground. I can still hold town halls and talk to my constituents about what's going on. I think that if anything, this last week has highlighted the importance of civic engagement and voter turnout and, and transparency. Yeah. What are some of the things that you're fighting for and that, that are key issues for you that you don't see meaning more than symbolism at this point and you voicing a certain ethic around certain issues? Talk about the things that are, matter most to you and how you were arguing for them or fighting for them before and how you foresee arguing for them now. Sure. That's a great question. Public education. First and foremost. So I, I was a I was a high school teacher here in Buncombe County. I was a public school teacher. My twin sister is still a high school teacher in down in Wake County. 
And I have worked at our, in a public university, have worked, spent a lot of time working with our public community colleges. I care deeply about North Carolina public education. We are seeing multiple examples in legislation. We are seeing a pattern over and over again of the state legislature micromanaging our public schools while at the same time dismantling and defunding them. We are seeing a massive shift of public taxpayer funds going to non-public institutions that are not being held accountable for the sound and basic education that we are constitutionally obligated to provide our students. And so that is extremely scary. And that's another one of those things you can frame it as parental choice, and that's exactly what they're calling it. And that sounds great, but what that means on the ground is public money going to non-public schools to pay for families to take their kids out of our public schools. And so that's scary. Yeah. So how do you, I imagine it's an ongoing debate in a sense that you're having a debate session with people who are for school choice, parental choice. How are you shifting those arguments and who are you talking to now to sway? Lindsay, yeah. talk about education first in this regard, and then we'll go to you, Julie, in a larger sense but who are you making this argument to and what ground do you hope to gain? Sure. So I'm making this argument both to legislators and to voters. So there are other state legislators who have democratic values, who care about our public education system, who may just not know all of the facts and the background of exactly how these bills are impacting our public schools and exactly what the long-term impact is going to be. And so I think it's highlighting, again, that things that seem maybe harmless or okay on the surface, but what that actually looks like from someone who has been in the classroom, has been on the ground, and has seen that impact. So I think there there are some legislators who just aren't aware of that and need to hear those stories. And there's also voters who, who don't I think, see the bigger picture, right? As a parent, you're going to do what's best for your child and your student. And I, that's absolutely what you should do as a parent. But I think it's my role in the state legislature to make sure that we're also looking at the bigger picture and the bigger impact on our school system. I want to get back to a question regarding schools. Julie, talk about in a large, in a more macro sense, how do you represent your district now in the Senate? And how have you been? How have you defined what that means to you when you can't put forward legislation that's going to get traction. So my answer is essentially the same as Lindsay's, that I continue to stand for and push on the issues that I ran on, the values that I have, the values that that my district, the voters in my district share. It, it is critical, especially in times like this, that we continue to be the voice, not just for our constituents, but on many issues, the voice of the majority of North Carolinians. So I'll talk about gun rights and gun control. We know that the vast majority, not just of North Carolinians, but of Americans want more gun control. They want to get a handle on all of the gun violence that we're seeing, not just the mass shootings, but everything else, also the suicides. We are, and the House and Senate have done a very good job of working together this year. We have come together on a set of bills around several issues, guns being one of them, LGBTQ issues being another, women's rights and abortion being a third, economic justice being a fourth. But to go back to the guns, we introduce a set of legislation in both the House and the Senate that sets forward what we know the majority of North Carolinians want. 
And so that is our message to this state that there is, in fact, a party out there that is representing you and what you want. And then it becomes your choice when it comes to the ballot box who you're going to vote for. So it's important for us to take these stands. It's important for us to to send the message to voters, again, not just in our in, in my district, but across the state, that there's a party that represents you, and we invite you to come support us. <laughs> yeah, Jewel, and I noticed on your in, next to your bio on the website has on every legislator the legislation that they have put forward that they're either a primary sponsor on or co-sponsor, and you've sponsored and primary sponsored a lot of legislation. Yeah. Talk about some of the ones that matter most to you and that maybe people don't know that is even though you are a primary sponsor on some legislation, a Democratic senator making these pieces of legislation, what's gaining traction? Who are you working with in the GOP to move certain things forward that people might not know about? Yeah, that's a great question. So the a lot of what I introduce and a lot of what all Democrats introduce are really just messaging bills and they fall into that category that I just was talking about. We're just sending the message that we're here to represent you. We're doing what you sent us here to do. We're championing those issues and those causes. This session, I have been very intentional in working with a number of Republicans on a number of issues. And it's been, I'm quite pleased that my Republican colleagues have come onto these bills with me and they range from a number. So I have some that are criminal justice related. For instance, a constituent brought an issue to me last year where that told me that North Carolina does not provide essentially food assistance, SNAP or TANF benefits to people convicted of drug felonies until six months after they get out of jail. And that's, we want these people to be successful and to rebuild their lives and to get out of the cycle of crime and poverty. If they can't eat, what are they going to do? It seems (laughs) arbitrarily punitive. So in the sixth month, we're actually not as bad as federal law. Federal law says none ever. And we, North Carolina, pulled it back to the six months, and you have to these folks have to be in drug, either a drug treatment or have taken a drug treatment program. So what my bill does is it says, no, you get them as soon as you get out of jail. And you, if you've taken drug treatment in prison, then that satisfies it. If you're in a drug treatment program, once you're out, that satisfies it. So we're, and I've gotten two Republicans, chairs of the Justice and Public Safety Committee, chair of the DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services Committee. Those two gentlemen, Republican senators, are on that bill with me. Let me ask you, do Republican legislators see it as a political risk any time they come on to a bill as a co-sponsor that has been put forward first by a Democratic legislator. From the outside looking in, it seems like quite an accomplishment to get a Republican co-sponsor on any of these bills, regardless of whether they are messaging bills or not. You're not going to get any Republicans on messaging bills. That's just clear. Those are issues that we just fundamentally disagree on, and that's just it. So where the work happens is you try to find those issues where there is the issues that aren't so politicized, and you try to take little steps where you can. And whether they consider it a risk, I don't know. I have good relationships with a lot of my Republican colleagues, and so I don't. If, I think if they viewed it as a risk, they wouldn't do it. Or if they didn't like me or want to work with me, they wouldn't do it. So clearly they they do like me. They're, do, they're interested in working with me. They agree with these issues. And when we get back from our break, we're going to try to move these bills forward. 
Want to see some fantastic theater for free? There are four remaining productions on the Magnetic Theater's 2023 calendar, and we're randomly giving away two pairs of tickets to each of them. Just sign up for the Overlook's weekly newsletter. Anyone subscribed by the end of April is eligible. Go to podavl.com, that's P-O-D-A-V-L.com, and scroll to the bottom of the homepage. Plug in your name and email address on the newsletter sign-up form, and you might become a new fan of the Magnetic Theater thanks to the Overlook. While we think of national politics as deeply divided, I wondered whether the lines are as fiercely drawn in state politics. I asked Julie Mayfield and Lindsey Prather whether Republicans vote consistently as a bloc or if they see wiggle room in their positions. I would say it, it depends on the issue, certainly. So I'll give an example. We just saw last week a Republican in the House file a total abortion ban. That's not going to pass. And that's because the Republican Party is divided on, they're stuck on number of weeks, right? And so the majority of the House Republicans will not support that bill. But because that one was introduced, then the other Republicans will get to come in with a maybe 12-week, 13-week bill and get to present that as a compromise because this other one has already been staked out as the extreme. And so I think it, it does depend on the issue. There's a little bit of strategy there. There are some things that their caucus has not agreed on. There are a lot of things that the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans don't agree on. This bill or this, the budget that we just passed this week in the House, that's going to change a lot. There are a lot of differences we already know between what the Senate is going to introduce in their budget and the House's budget. When you say it's going to change a lot, just to be clear, it's not going to change from Democratic input. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Don't be silly. Don't be silly, Matt. No. I would just want to state that so for people wondering. I wasn't wondering. Sure. But. Sure. And I'll just say committee meetings and, and chamber sessions are live streamed. So anybody can watch those or listen to those. If you want to listen to the Appropriations Committee last week, you'll hear pretty much every Democratic amendment gets shot down. But again, there's still value and importance in letting our constituents and our voters and our state know that we see them and that we're worried about the same things that they are. On the big national issues, again, abortion, guns, LGBTQ, education. It's unfortunate that education has gotten so politicized, but it has. There are probably, there are probably others, but those are the ones that come to mind. Mm-hmm. We're not going to agree, and the Republicans, for the most part, are going to vote as a block. That is absolutely the case in the Senate, the North Carolina Senate. The House, there may be a little more but in the Senate, they vote as a block 99% of the time. So that's on one extreme. On the other extreme are just a couple of issues that we've seen where the Republicans do split. And those are the two issues that we've seen this session are medical marijuana and sports betting. And Mm -hmm. there is a block of Republicans in both the House and the Senate that these are folks who are going to vote against anything dealing with alcohol, gambling, drugs, just that vice, anything vice. vice. That's right. right. They're the anti-vice folks. And most of those people, I think, come at it from a very strong position of faith. That's what's driving their positions on this. But then there's all the stuff in the middle and there's tons of stuff in the middle. Most of the stuff is in the middle. And as I said earlier, that's where the work gets done. That's where Democrats can work with Republicans on issues because sometimes we know more about things than they do. I'll just give you an example Somebody, a couple of Republicans in the Senate have just introduced a couple of 
bills related to hemp, but they're, what they're really trying to do is target Delta-8, which is hemp in an intoxicating form. It's basically like marijuana. Their bills are over-inclusive in that they also include just regular old CBD products that are not intoxicating. Well, because we have a lot of hemp growers here, and I was a lead on, on the, for the Democrats on hemp issues in the last session, I know a lot about that, and so I can look at these bills and say, hey, guys, tell me what you're trying to do, and what your, what your bill does is it doesn't do what you want it to do or it does more, it's going to actually be harmful. So they've said, okay, great, Let's, we can talk about that and we're happy to amend. We are allowed to bring our experiences in and we are allowed to amend bills. And 90, again, I don't know about in the House, but 95% of the time, maybe 90% of the time, we all push the green button. We all vote yes. Because most of the things we, we deal with on the floor and things that come through committee are not those big hot button national agenda issues. They're just bills that are making things better for the people of North Carolina. But the hot button issues, don't they cast a cloud over relationships within the House and Senate that when it comes to a seemingly innocuous issue, that there's memories? You do, I will say, and not everybody does this well, I try very hard to segregate it. Because again, if I want to get anything done, I have to work with Republicans. Senator Michael Lee is one of the Republicans I'm working with on a number of bills. Senator Michael Lee is also the co-sponsor of the Don't Say Gay bill. And we've, ha- we've had a conversation about that. I have to just put that over on the side and work with him on radon. We just introduced a bill yesterday led by Senator Lee that will give DREAMers, DACA recipients, in-state tuition. Do you know how many years we've been trying to do that? That is brilliant. So you have to got to segregate and be able to work with people who are also championing things that you don't like. And that is not to say that I do not get very angry and that there are sometimes that, you know, and I, it happened on the floor this week because of a bill that's really too complicated to talk about. But I went up to one of my colleagues and I just said, you know, what the hell are you doing? This is unfair. It's undemocratic. And you know it. And you're doing it anyway. Detail that a little bit. Sure. So this is a bill, it's Senate Bill 512, and what it does is it removes from the governor a number of appointments to key state boards, like the Utilities Commission, the DOT Board, the Coastal Resources Commission, I can't quite remember what some of the others are, but 12 boards. And under our Constitution, the governor is charged with executing the laws of the state. Okay. These are all boards and commissions that are part of the executive branch. They live under the governor. And we have had two Supreme Court, North Carolina Supreme Court decisions on this when the Republicans several years ago pulled a bunch of governor appointments to boards. And the North Carolina Supreme Court said the governor has to have a majority of appointments to these boards. Legislature can have some, but the governor has to have a majority. Otherwise, he can't fulfill his duty to faithfully execute the laws. And so they're coming back and they're trying it again. Because the North Carolina Supreme Court now has changed over to mm-hmm. conservative majority. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's exactly what it is, that right? That is exactly what it is. You would think there would be that any Supreme Court ruling would have a timestamp that this cannot be changed. It's it, this, is, this is as political a body as the legislature is then. Well, court, courts have become that way as a lawyer. They have not been that way. They should not be that way. And this is a dynamic, this politicization of the courts really is something that's happened, I would say, only in the last 20 years. And you just have to look at the history of Supreme Court approvals at the federal level. Very few controversies 
going well, back in time. Some people do believe there are Republicans who will argue that you can go back to Robert Bork at the U.S. Supreme Court and his nomination being pulled as the first real political act of the Supreme Court. That's, that is certainly one example, right. for sure. But I will say that here in North Carolina, one of the things that the Republicans did was make judicial elections partisan. When you do that, you have just, it's you've, just done. You've made politics. That's, a, that's an outright endorsement. Now, you said you had this argument with one of your colleagues and said, this is anti-democratic. You know it. I know it. What was the response? A shrug of the shoulders. So here's the thing. We know, as Lindsay said earlier, there is a range of conservatism within the Republican Party, both in the House and Senate. But the problem is they are not allowed to express that. And part of that is the political lockstep that is demanded of them by their leadership in the Senate. And part of it is if they break ranks, they're, of course, worried about being primaried. So they don't feel like they have the same freedom that we do on the Democratic side. My answer to that is sometimes you just have to exercise political courage. We've all had to do it as elected officials. We've all had to take votes where we've put our seat on the line. And my view is when you continue to vote for things that are so contrary to what the people of North Carolina want, that you're really just not, you're not doing your duty. You're putting party and power over the people that you represent. I want to go back to education in a sense. And when you were talking about parental choice, and tell me if I'm wrong in reading it this way, Lindsay, that when public dollars are siphoned away from public education, it makes it more challenging for public education to be successful. And that proponents of privatizing education say, see, public education is failing, so we need to privatize. It's like a self-fulfilling motive and prophecy. Am I seeing this in the wrong way? You nailed it. So if that's so, you would think the vast majority of people in the public want their public schools funded well enough to create a quality education experience. Why is this such a challenge to have happen politically? Fantastic question. So the challenge is the framing and the messaging that the public is hearing. So just like you said, there's the one issue is the our public schools are failing. We've been telling the public that for years from the state legislature. And again, it has been a self-fulfilling prophecy because we as a state government have been actively causing our public schools to fail. Leader Robert Reeves had a great speech on the budget on the floor just the other day, I guess that was just yesterday, where he gave an example of, look, I can take $200 out of your wallet and then I can give you $100 and I've made a historic investment in you by giving you $100. So the Republicans have done a very good job in telling the public, look, we've provided more raises to teachers than this state has ever seen, or higher raises than when the Democrats were in charge. When those raises are only 1% above inflation, (laughs) that's not making a difference. It doesn't matter how much money you're putting into the system or claiming that you're giving to people if that money is not going into the right place and if that money is not reflecting the difference that we need to see. We've got the Leandro case. We know how much money needs to go into our public school system. And this budget, I think, provides like 10% of that. And so the public is hearing, your schools are failing. We're trying to give you more money to put your kids in a different school. And when you hear people say, oh, we don't support the public schools. We gave all this money to them last year. 
So mm. they have set up that system where, sure, it looks like they're investing in our schools, but when you actually look at the numbers and compared to things like cost of living, and like I said, things like comparing it to inflation, it's not making the difference it's supposed to make. When you compare what teachers are making to other people with bachelor's degrees and licenses in North Carolina. So I think that is the difficulty and that is what is shrouding this argument. North Carolina State Senator Julie Mayfield and Representative Lindsey Prather are also my guests for tomorrow's episode. We'll talk about their specific fights to protect women's rights and voting rights. We'll talk about fighting against the headwinds for progressive values, for democracy itself, and for more local control. That's all on tomorrow's episode of The Overlook. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. Don't forget, we're giving away two pairs of tickets to the rest of the Magnetic Theater's productions for 2023. To be eligible, just sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. Also, please vote for The Overlook as Best Podcast, and for me as your favorite radio host, in Mountain Express's Best of WNC survey. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.